When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome in, everybody, to episode 216 of the podcast. It is Sweeping America, the Aerotora Sports Podcast. What a show tonight, people. In what is be quickly becoming a Wednesday night tradition, I am recording after a wild night of college basketball. In full disclosure, as of about 1 o'clock Wednesday afternoon, I assumed I was going to lead this show with college football because I figured what could possibly top LSU's historic national championship run, and then Auburn lost for the first time in the season, Kentucky lost to South Carolina, Duke of course lost on Tuesday night, and Seton Hall played one of the best games that I've seen all season against Butler. So we are, in fact, going to lead with college basketball. We're going to talk about those four big games. I'll do a couple minutes on each. I don't know that any of them is this earth-shattering, game-changing, life-altering thing. Maybe Seton Hall is more so than any of the teams that lost. We will then get to football with Joe Burrow, with LSU. I think I have some interesting thoughts on that game that you haven't heard anywhere else. Not so much about the game itself, but what happens now. Now that Joe Burrow, of course, is off to the NFL, that LSU has lost its passing game coordinator, Joe Brady, to the NFL. Uh, and what's the future of that program? Is this something that's sustainable? So it's a fun conversation with myself because that's what I do. Uh, and then I will wrap with a couple things. Uh, one, I will wrap actually with a quick preview of the Arkansas-Kentucky game Saturday. I was actually supposed to be there. Unfortunately, couldn't make it work. Uh, but listen, I, I think that Probably the two fan bases that listen to this show the most are Kentucky fans and Arkansas fans. Tennessee fans are up there. I do think there's a lot of Louisville fans that listen to this show, whether they'd admit it or not. Um, we have fans from all over, but I do think Kentucky and Arkansas are the two fan bases that listen the most. So I'm going to do a quick five, ten minutes on the back end previewing Saturday's game. If you're a Kentucky fan still pissed off about the South Carolina game, uh, just ignore that or wait until Friday when you've cooled off. I get it. You're not going to be in a very good mood on Thursday. I wouldn't be either if I was a Kentucky fan after that loss. So stay tuned till the very end. I will have a little bit on Kentucky, Arkansas to end the show. Shout out of the day as always, and then we'll wrap up. Before we get started, I'm going to jump right into it because I don't want to waste any time. So much to get into. If you're not subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, please make sure to do so as soon as humanly possible. You can do so on iTunes. You can do so on Podcast Addict. You can do so on Podbean, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast. Make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can also rate and review the show. Give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. We actually have uh, a couple new reviews since the last time we uh, we did this. Uh, shout out to Johnny B from Tennessee who says, started listening to AT's pod a few years ago when I was looking for someone to with college hoops knowledge to tell me how realistically good my Tennessee Vols were that year. Told you you have a lot of Tennessee Vols fans listening. They were good and ended up winning the SEC with Auburn. 
AT gave me a, gave me real takes on their potential, their shortcomings, and has helped my love for college basketball expand beyond my vols, beyond the SEC. I might not always like my take on his, I might not always like his take on my team, but it's some some good food for thought. So if you're looking for someone to break down the teams, the fake teams, the other teams, and where they actually stand against each other. This is the podcast to do it. So, Johnny B., thank you so much, and thank you to everybody. Sean Sprague tuned in the other day. Yes, yes, no tuned in. So if you have a rating or a review, go ahead and do it on iTunes. I appreciate everybody who does that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we're going to keep this thing rolling, and I'm glad you guys enjoy the show. Obviously, if you're following along on Instagram, I've been handing out winners left and right. I gave you Texas Tech on uh Tuesday night, I actually almost gave out uh, Auburn, uh, Alabama, but stayed away at the last minute. But make sure you're following the Instagram page, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast on Instagram. Uh, And finally, if you have questions, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. I know I teased on the the Instagram page and on my Twitter page that we were going to do a mailbag, but so much stuff happened on Wednesday night. I think we'll hold the mailbag for another time. I think between all the games that we got on Tuesday and Wednesday, it's going to be enough to get us through on top of the College Football National Championship on Monday. All right, so let's get into it. And in a place that I could have never imagined that I would start this show about, I don't know, 24 hours ago, I am actually going to start with the Alabama-Auburn game Wednesday night. It was a 9 o'clock Eastern time tip-off, 8 o'clock Central, 6 o'clock Pacific where I was. Um, and maybe I'm just like hyped because I'm doing it right after the game, but I enjoyed the heck out of that game. And I really thought it was a turning point uh, for one program. It was obviously Auburn's first loss of the year. They were undefeated coming in. And so I do want to start with that game. And what was interesting to me, we're going to get to Auburn in a minute. I don't think there's some big sweeping, they're terrible, oh my God, shut down the program, Bruce Pearl forgot how to coach in one night. No, that's not what happened. What I do think is interesting, though, is that while the headline is, of course, that Auburn lost the game, coming in for people who don't know, and I'm assuming anybody that would listen to this podcast would know, but for people who don't know, Auburn was one of two remaining undefeated teams coming into Wednesday night. Uh, obviously they lost. San Diego State is the only undefeated team. And so that's what everyone's going to be talking about come Thursday morning. Here's the thing though. Here's what AT does different. This is why AT's the man. And AT uh, has the best podcast going according to Johnny B from Tennessee. And it's very simply this. I think the headline is that Auburn lost. I think that the story is that the Alabama Crimson Tide may have turned a corner on the season. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is, look, the headline is the big overarching, what everybody's going to be talking about, but what nobody is talking about is where Alabama was, where Alabama is, and where I think Alabama could be going, and when I think about this Alabama team, what I really do think about is where the season started, which was with Nate Oates on this podcast saying that he believes that This Alabama team is an NCAA tournament team. And for people who are new to the show or just picking us up or kind of, you know, missed an episode here and there, listen, I get it. We all do it. We all have podcasts uh, we like and we don't like, and you miss an episode here and there. But right at the start of the season, Nate Oates came on this show. We had a good conversation. I actually genuinely enjoyed it. And one of the things that really stood out to me is exactly what I just said. He told me, he said, dude, I'm going to be honest. 
I think we're a tournament team. And for me, that really stood out because it's not often that you hear coaches be so bold, especially first-year head coaches at a new job, in a new place. You don't want to set the bar too high. You don't want to set expectations too high. But he said, look, I think we're a tournament team, and I happen to agree with him. He brought back Kyra Lewis, who was a kid that was potentially good enough to go to the NBA draft last year. Uh, He brought back, actually, I don't even think Kyra Lewis was technically eligible because he was so young, but Kyra Lewis is going to be a first-round pick this year. John Petty's former top 40 recruit that can play. He brought in Beto Bolden, who played at West Virginia. And you just looked at the roster. You said, this is a tournament team. Nate Oates confirms it, but they didn't look like it early in the season. They lost to Penn on opening night, ironically, the night that I ran the interview. Uh, They lost to Penn State early. They lost to Rhode Island early. They lost two games in the Bahamas early and really set themselves back. And I was sitting there saying early, like, maybe I just whiffed on this one. Maybe AT's got to take an L on this one. Maybe Coach Oates even overvalued where his team was at. But if you were paying attention, and I did tweet this out on Wednesday morning, Alabama really has started to make a turn the last two or three weeks once SEC play has started. I really do think it actually started against Florida in the O-Dome, and you guys kind of know what I think of Florida. I'm a little bit underwhelmed by Florida. I believe I even called Mike White Shaka Smart of the Deep South at one point in one of my pieces of writing, but Alabama completely outplayed Florida in both teams' SEC openers. They ended up losing in overtime in that game. But if you watch that game, you saw that Alabama was going in the right direction. They followed up dominating Mississippi State. They followed that up by going to Rupp Arena last Saturday. And I'll be honest, listen, Kentucky won. Kentucky was the deserving team. But Alabama missed a lot of shots that they normally make. And so I just kind of felt like this team feels like it's going in the right direction. And then Wednesday was the stamp of approval that we were all waiting for that said, like, dude, this team is for real, man. Like, this team can play. And what I love about this team, and you guys know this is a big thing. This is a big thing that I like when I kind of cover college basketball and teams I like, teams I don't like, is... I like a team that knows what their identity is, and Alabama absolutely does know what its identity is, and it took a while to get there, but what's so interesting about Alabama, they are one of these programs that is big into analytics, and they almost play like the Houston Rockets, where if you watch their games, they they showed it on the Kentucky game, they showed it on Wednesday on the Auburn game, basically every shot that they take is either a layup or a three-pointer. So they're trying to attack the rim and get a layup at the rim or get fouled or take a three-point shot because there's nothing worse than a mid-range jumper in that system and nothing worse than a mid-range jumper according to the analytics. And so I find that fascinating and I find it fascinating that they're finally executing it. And if you watch Wednesday, they just look like a team that's humming, man. They play fast. They play aggressive. They get downhill. And I couldn't help but think a couple things. One, this is a team that's figuring it out. Two, if you're an SEC fan, we've been talking a lot about all the great coaches that have come into this league over the last couple years, and listen, the great coaches are going to stay great. Bruce Pearl ain't going anywhere. John Calipari ain't going anywhere. Rick Barnes, I know he's having a down year, but he ain't going anywhere. Uh, Buzz Williams actually is coaching his you-know-what off at Texas A&M, Eric Musselman at Arkansas, but I watched Nate Oates tonight, and I said, man, if you're a guard playing college basketball... 
I don't know how you couldn't want to come to Alabama to play for this guy because they play fast, they play aggressive, and it showed tonight. It was just a spectacular win. By the way, Kyra Lewis, the kid that I mentioned, that kid is phenomenal. 25 points. He's averaging almost 17 a game and five assists. That is a guy that looks like a future first-round draft pick, and I'm telling you, the headline was that Auburn lost, but the story is that I think this Alabama team is for real. They're only 9-7. and seven. They do have those two early SEC losses at Kentucky, at Florida, but I think this is a team that is ready to flip a switch, really take the SEC by storm. They have their players. They now have the system down, and I think that this game against Auburn was a sign of things to come and a very manageable schedule going forward with Missouri at home, Vandy on the road, and then Kansas State in the Big 12 SEC Challenge here in a couple weeks. Really quickly on Auburn, listen, I said it off the top. I'm going to stand by it. I don't believe that there is some massive, crazy, huge, big picture takeaway that you need to take away, and Auburn sucks. I saw this tweet uh, by a few people, including some prominent basketball writers, and it's like I said, man, like, I just don't, you know, I, I, I see these people say this stuff, and listen, I know that AT has a little bit of rep, yo, he comes in with the hot takes, and I've told you before, I don't do hot takes, I just see stuff and I just tell it like it is, but sometimes it's an unpopular opinion, but I think a lot of the, uh, some other people in the media, and I don't want to name names, but... I think that, I don't think it, I think they're trying to be interesting. I I don't know. I don't want to criticize other people because everyone is entitled to their opinions, but I saw a lot of, well, this proves Auburn isn't good. And again, everyone's entitled to their opinions. I apologize if I've offended anybody. I just can't sit there and say that this proves that Auburn stinks. Really? Really? Bruce Pearl, the guy that made the Final Four last year, the guy that had Tennessee in its only Elite Eight in school history, the guy that won multiple Division II national championships, the guy that got UW-Milwaukee to the Sweet 16. Yeah, that guy uh, forgot how to coach, and now he stinks, and now his team stinks? I don't buy it. I don't buy it, and I don't get where this is coming from. I understand that Auburn hasn't played the most challenging schedule in the history of college basketball, but they've beaten a couple really good teams early. They beat a good Richmond team uh, early in the season. They beat a good St. Louis team. They beat NC State. They beat Mississippi State at Mississippi State to open SEC play. And I understand none of these are these amazing top 10 wins. You throw a ticker take parade, but this is a team that coming into Wednesday night hadn't lost a game in what, 10 months? The last time they lost was basically at the buzzer to Virginia in the Final Four. They go on the road. They play a rival. The rival plays it's out of its mind in front of a crazy crowd. And I just can't sit there and say right now, today, this second, that it means that Auburn stinks. Listen, I don't think it was their best game. Samir Doughty, who is their best player, had six points in the entire game. Overall, Auburn shot shot, excuse me, shot 25% from beyond the three-point line. That's something that's obviously not going to get the job done, and it's not really reflective of who Auburn is because they shoot almost 33% from three. Not great, but it's not who Auburn is. Also, 21 turnovers. So listen, I I just don't buy this narrative that this loss means that Auburn was a fraud all along and they're not that good. Are they the fourth best team in the country? Probably not. Are they somewhere between, you know, one and 20? Yeah, and considering how much they lost... 
I actually think that's a pretty big accomplishment. So those are some quick thoughts, excuse me, on Auburn, Alabama. I do want to transition to the other big game in the SEC, which was, of course, Kentucky's loss to South Carolina. On the surface look, you know, it's another one where I don't feel like this is a massive, like, sky is falling loss for Kentucky, although there were certainly some concerns, which we're going to get into in a minute. But I think, like, the big thing that stands out to me is that, first of all, the refereeing was abysmal. I mean, it was terrible. It was at times unwatchable. Uh, you finish with 54 total fouls in that game that was called. And I think when that happens, what ends up happening is this. It slows down the game. It benefits kind of the more physical team that plays at that pace anyway, which is South Carolina. South Carolina wants to play a game in the 50s. It benefits South Carolina. It takes away what Kentucky does best, which is get out in transition, get the ball in those guard guards' hands. We know that their, their best lineup involves Ashton Hagens, Tyrese Maxey, and Emmanuel Quickly. And so when 54 fouls are called between the two teams, what ends up happening is you have a sloppy, ugly game like that. Now, with that said, I think we can all agree that even with the 54 fouls called, the refs aren't the reason that Kentucky lost. This was a game where they had a 14-point lead in the second half and still managed to lose in regulation. And like a lot of stuff went wrong. Um, the fouls obviously threw off everything because now you're playing lineups that aren't used to playing with each other. A kid like Johnny Juzang, who's been out with the flu, is asked to play minutes that he hasn't played in a while. Khalil Whitney's playing more than he did. Uh, a guy like Nick Richards is playing less. Ashton Hagens fouls out. The fouls really threw off everything. But it's not an excuse for the fact that you give up 56 points in the second half to one of the most offensively incompetent teams in college basketball. And so when I look back at the fact that Kentucky did in fact lose this game, they did in fact blow a 14-point lead, a couple things kind of stand out to me about that. So I think first of all, John Calipari said it, listen, the great teams, you get a 14-point lead, you put your foot on your, thro on your opponent's throat, and you end it right there. You finish them, you put them away, and Kentucky didn't do that. They didn't make enough plays. Some of it, of course, again, it was the fouls, it was this, it was that. But you got to put them away. You got to put them away. And I just think it shows that on January 15th, Kentucky isn't a great team. They very rarely are a great team on January 15th, even dating back to last year when I believe they had a team good enough to win the national championship. They were not a great team on January 15th. Um, I do think that this team has been going in the right direction for the last four games. I do think this was a bad loss, but I uh, again, I, I think it just shows everything that I've been saying since the Michigan State game and really the Evansville game, which is very simply, this team cannot take nights off. This team is not good enough to have a 14-point lead and take their foot off the gas. Now, I think the offense has certainly evolved but I also think that their, their identity is still defensively. Their identity is never going to be to score, you know, 84 points a game. Now, they have at times had those moments where Emmanuel quickly gets hot and Tyrese Maxey's hot and Nick Richards is dunking everything down low. And in those games, yeah, it's a little bit different. It is a little bit different, and they, they do have that capability, but it comes back to the defensive end, and when you give up 56 points in a game, it doesn't matter who you are. You're not going to win those games. And so I look back. By the way, think about it like this. 
I saw a stat out there. I don't know if it's true. But remember last year when Kentucky played Duke to open the season and it was like literally the worst loss of John Calipari's career? And we remember that game as just this unwatchable fiasco. And it, I mean, it, it was. I'm not saying that it wasn't. But if you go back to that game, Kentucky gave up 59 points in each half to Duke, but they only gave up 59 points to a Duke team that had Zion Williamson, the number one pick, RJ Barrett, the number three pick, Cam Reddish, who was a top 10 pick. They gave up 59 points and a half to that team. They gave up 56 to South Carolina on on Wednesday. It's just unacceptable. You can't be that bad on defense against a team like South Carolina. Get a couple more stops. The game is over. You get out of there with a six-point win. You go home, and, and you move on to the next game. And you just can't do that if you're the University of Kentucky. The last thing that really stood out to me about this game, which is something I never thought I'd say, I think it shows how important Nick Richards is to this team. And and it sounds crazy. This is a guy that six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, we were like, dude, this guy's just never going to figure it out. He's just whatever. Well, in the last like five or six games, he has been phenomenal. He has been dominant. He has been a great two-way player. And when he's been off the court, they haven't been the same team. It's not a coincidence that when they fell behind early at Georgia, it was because he was in foul trouble. He comes back in. He dominates on the glass. He dominates protecting the rim. And when he was in the game, they were a completely different team. And so I bring it up because when I look back at this game, Nick Richards, even though he did finish with 15 points, I don't think he ever got into a flow because he only played 24 minutes because of foul trouble. And I do think that while Tyrese Maxey's the star, and I, I think Ashton Hagens has been awesome, even though he, he didn't have a particularly great game on Wednesday night, Emmanuel Quickly's been awesome as well. I do think Nick Richards is the X factor and the difference maker for this team. Because think about it, when Nick Richards is on the court, here's what can happen. First of all, he is the best defensive presence, you could argue the best defensive big guy in the SEC. I'm saying it out loud, I don't know if there's a better one that I'm missing, but I don't think that there is. And so because of that, you're missing that on the defensive end, it completely changes everything, it makes everything at the rim that much easier, but then think about it at the opposite end. Think about the fact that when you do have a 14-point lead, what can you do if you're Kentucky? You dribble the ball down to, you know, you dribble a shot clock down for 23, 24 seconds. You dump it down to Nick Richards. He either gets you a dunk or he gets to the foul line, and he's a really good foul shooter. He can hit the 15-foot shot. He's pretty automatic when he gets the ball in the paint. And again, when he has been playing in these games, and I'm not blaming him for the loss because some of the foul calls were just abysmal, but I think what it shows is how important it is to what he, he, how important he is to what they do. He just gets them easy baskets and easy points. They can run down the clock. They don't need to take, you know, a low percentage shots. And I just think he is so important to what they do. And so as I watched that game, that was something that just absolutely stood out to me, which was like, dude, this guy's probably more important than we realized. Credit to South Carolina. They did in the end, maybe deserve to, I don't, I don't even know if they deserve to win this game. I'm not going to sit here and like beat my chest for Frank Martin. Like I think they got lucky. I do think that this game to me shows that Kentucky's identity is still on the defensive end. I still think it comes down to Nick Richards. Obviously, the guards have to play better. Certainly, um, the wing players have to play better. And, you know, we're starting to get to the point where if Khalil Whitney or Keon Brooks is going to make a jump, 
It better happen soon. EJ Montgomery better make a jump pretty soon. By the way, that's the other reason that Nick Richards is so important is because EJ Montgomery doesn't want to shoot the ball from anywhere inside 15 feet. Nate Sestina is a three-point shooter. He's basically their only offense down low. So this loss to me is certain, to be clear, I'm not saying it's on Nick Richards. I'm just saying it shows how important it is that he stay on the court and stay in foul trouble. By the way, again, on the back end of the show, I'll talk a little Kentucky-Arkansas, which is the Saturday game. Two quick other results from earlier in the week. Uh, the first one, Duke and Clemson. And listen, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this one because I just don't feel like there was some crazy takeaway from this game. I just said it with Auburn. I just said it with Kentucky. This is college basketball. Teams lose on any given night. It happens. It's part of the sport. Michigan State got destroyed by Purdue on Sunday. I don't think it means that Michigan State's a terrible team. Villanova went to overtime against DePaul. I don't think it means that Villanova is going in the wrong direction. And Duke lost by seven on the road in the ACC. Now, I think part of it probably shows Duke probably not quite as good as their record said they were. I do find it interesting that they have been fine in their biggest games. They beat Kansas to start the year. They beat Georgetown, who's actually not playing terribly. They crushed Michigan State at Michigan State. And Duke has been fine in their big games, but look at the games against the other teams that aren't quite as good. They lost to Stephen F. Austin. Not sure if you heard. They lost to Clemson. They easily could have lost at Georgia Tech a few weeks ago. And so what this says to me is that I I don't think Duke is as good. I don't think their margin for error, and it's a lot like I just said with Kentucky. I don't think their margin for error is quite as big as it's been in years past, where if if they're not playing their best game every single night, they are susceptible to losing. And if you watch the game on Wednesday, on Tuesday, you know it was not their best game. The big thing that stood out to me when I was watching that game, their defense was not up to par, and this was a real question about Duke coming into the season. Do they have the athletic ability of previous years? Do they have the guys that can defend? Even a guy like Vernon Carey, their big guy down low, he's not the kind of guy that's that's quick and athletic. He's not a Nick Richards. He's kind of slower. He's bigger. He's stronger. But what kind of presence would they have on the defensive end of the court where they really didn't have any of those lockdown guys? And then on top of that, one of their better wing defenders, Wendell Moore, was out on Tuesday with an injury. Well, we saw the results. Clemson shot 57% from the field and made eight of 19 threes, which is 42%. And like, I just think that's the reality is like, look, Duke is a good team. Duke is really good. Duke is probably one of the five best teams in one way, shape or form, but Duke is not invincible. Zion Williamson ain't walking through that door. RJ Barrett ain't walking through that door. And that's really my only takeaway. Duke actually plays Louisville this weekend. I think they bounce back. I think they'll be okay because the game is at Cameron Indoor. But what it, what all that really stood out to me about that game was they were not locked in defensively. They were giving up contest, uncontested three-pointers. They were giving up uncontested layups. And you can tell that even though they were ranked number two in the country, whatever they were ranked, they have a long way to go. All right, last game that I want to get to, then we'll get to some football. We'll wrap. I do want to talk a little bit about this Seton Hall-Butler game. Because it was going on at the exact same time as the Kentucky-South Carolina game. I know a lot of you were watching that game. Seton Hall-Butler was one of the best games I've seen this season. And shout out to Seton Hall. Shout out to Butler. Seton Hall goes on the road. 18th ranked team in the country. They go to number five Butler. 
and beat them 78-70. to Butler's only loss coming into this game was to Baylor, and so this was a big win for Seton Hall. This was a huge win for Seton Hall. Really quickly, I do want to give a little credit to the losing team, Butler. First of all, if, if you didn't watch this game, if you were focused on Kentucky, South Carolina, this game felt like an NCAA tournament game. It just it just had a buzz to it, a vibe to it, an energy in the building. Shout out to everybody at Hinkle Fieldhouse. And again, I do want to start with a little bit of credit to the Butler Bulldogs, which sounds weird because they just lost at home as a favorite to a lower-ranked team. But I'll be honest, I had watched Butler throughout the season, and I really hadn't talked about them much because I really didn't think they were like that good. Um, and I think they showed me another side of them tonight. If you've watched them throughout the season, you kind of see like they're just one of these Midwest teams. They play slow. They play really good defense. They do this. They do that. But they never like, you know, they just never just beat the you-know-what out of somebody. They don't have overwhelming talent. They don't have NBA talent. And I kind of just thought they were like one of these teams, okay, they're going to beat the teams they're supposed to. They're going to be like a three seed, and they're going to be they're going to lose to somebody that just gets hot in the NCAA tournament. That can certainly still happen. But what I saw from Butler on Wednesday night was a team that can, one, step up to the occasion, and two, in big games when they have to, uh, when the style changes, they can play a more high-scoring game. I didn't think that if this game went into the 70s, they could compete. And this game came right down to the wire, even though Seton Hall made some foul shots late to make it look more one-sided than it was. I know the final score was 78-70, to 70, but really it, it, it was basically a one-possession game until there was basically like 30 seconds left. And so I do want to give Butler a little bit of credit, but the story here is Seton Hall. And listen, I know that I have... Uh, you know, talked about Seton Hall really quite a bit uh, on this show the last couple episodes, and it's really been like in passing, like, oh, you know, Seton Hall, they're good, they're fun, watch out for them, blah, blah, blah. I do want to give them a little bit of credit, though, and I do want to talk about them a little bit more than I have, because I just feel like, oh, I've given them like a a minute here and a minute there, and so I'm going to give them, I don't know, three minutes, five minutes, whatever, but this team is awesome, okay? This team is awesome. They are ranked 18th in the country, and you know what? I do not care. They are one of the 10 best teams in college basketball right now. I have zero doubt about it in my mind. By the way, that probably inevitably means they will lose their next game to whoever the heck they're playing. But this is a team that has won, I think, six in a row now, seven in a row. They're 5-0 and in the Big East. Three Big East road wins already won at Xavier, at DePaul, and at Butler on Wednesday night. And I just love watching this team. They 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 are veteran, they are tough, they are fearless. I said it off the top with Alabama, they know who they are now. They play four guards. They they all kind of play well together. They got the big guy down low, Romero Gill. And what I love about them, like I just said a minute ago, is their toughness. They take big shots. They make big shots. They're not afraid of the moment. I know I said it on the last show. I do think the early schedule helped them. They played in Atlantis where they played Oregon. They played Michigan State early in the year. They actually played Iowa State twice, once in Atlantis, once on the road. They played Rutgers, who's good. They played Maryland, who's good. And I think it's showing now. This team is hitting its groove and it's hitting its stride. And I'd also be remiss if I did not mention Miles Powell, because in a year where there is no clear-cut national player of the year, 
I think you got to consider this guy. First of all, this guy was phenomenal against Butler. 29 points. He hit one big shot after the other. Played great on defense. Jumped passing lanes. Did everything that you'd want from a perimeter scorer, shooter, defender, whatever. And when I look back at his entire season, the thing that stands out to me is that he plays his best in his biggest games. 29 points on Wednesday night against Butler. 37 against Michigan State. He's had other 30-point games throughout the season. 24 at Xavier a few weeks ago. 32 even in a loss to Oregon. And what I love about him and what I love about this team Everybody knows who they are and what their role is. At this point, there is no confusing it. He is the star. He is taking the big shots. It appears as though everybody's okay with it. They have other guards that can hit big shots. They have Romero Gill down low. And like I said, they're veteran. They are tough. They know who they are. And I'm telling you, they can absolutely play with anybody in college basketball. They will, If they win on Saturday when they play next, they will be in my top 10 next week. I don't care if they had four losses to start the year. They are that good. They are playing that well. And I'm telling you, watch this team when you can. They are really fun. Whew. All right, let's quickly, and it's not going to be quick, let's actually get to some football. Obviously, the national championship game was on Monday night. And of course, uh, as I record here, and, and by the time you guys listen, it'll be Thursday morning, Thursday afternoon, Friday morning. We're going to be 48 hours, 72 hours removed from the game. So I'm not going to do the whole like, well, in the second quarter when this happened, like, like you guys know that's not what I'm about. That's not what I do. Do want to talk about a couple of the smaller picture kind of in-game things. And then I kind of want to talk about the bigger picture because I find the next, I think, year as fascinating in the LSU story and the Joe Burrow story and the Joe Brady story, I find that what's to come as interesting as what happened. And as far as the game itself is concerned, look, I said on last show, I did in fact like LSU to win this game. I don't know if I gave a final score. It was not a game that I personally bet, even though I was in Vegas. I just felt like, look, it could be 38-35 LSU. It could be 38 16 LSU. I wasn't picking against LSU though. And listen, I know that uh, as the week kind of progressed, uh, the, the the talk was that early on, all the public money was on LSU. And it was really interesting actually, because after I was done recording um, this podcast on, I guess it was Sunday afternoon at Legacy's, I was actually talking to a guy that worked at Legacy's, and he said that it was the most public, one-sided game of this magnitude in terms of a big, wide-scale game since the Super Bowl that featured the Broncos and the Seahawks. And in that game, the public was on the Broncos, and the Seahawks ended up winning that game. And so I thought that was kind of interesting, and I did think it was kind of interesting that uh, Clemson was, while LSU was the very public team, over the final week or so, you kept hearing stories about Clemson being the favorite uh, among the people in Vegas, and you kind of heard all these stories about, oh, you know, this sports book took 100000 on Clemson, and this one took $2.1 like whatever. And I get it, and I understand that professional bettors have metrics that we're not, that we don't have access to. I understand how all this stuff works. What I knew was that I simply wasn't betting against LSU, and it's as I told you on the last show. I bet against LSU against Texas. I bet against them against Florida. I bet against them against Bama. I was just done betting against LSU. I was just done because this was a story that was bigger than metrics, bigger than computers, bigger than data, and we may actually get into a little bit of data and all that kind of stuff in the mailbag coming up, but it was bigger than that, right? Like, like you can have all the metrics you want, 
LSU already beat Florida and Georgia and Alabama and Oklahoma and Texas and Texas A&M and Auburn. Like, I don't need metrics to tell me that they are the better team, and that's no disrespect to Clemson. And then on top of that, you have the Heisman Trophy winner, the games in New Orleans. It just didn't feel like LSU was going to lose this game. So LSU wins. I'm not surprised. I picked LSU. Am I surprised it ultimately ended up being a three-possession game? Of course I am. Listen, Clemson's a great program, and I know that a lot of people on Tuesday night or Tuesday morning, Monday night, whatever, use this as a referendum on Clemson and the ACC is so bad and blah, blah. Don't listen to that crap. Clemson's a great team. They are a great program. Trevor Lawrence obviously didn't play his best game, but you don't win 20-whatever games in a row, 29 in a row coming into this game if you're not a juggernaut, and you're not, you don't come into this game, period, if you don't beat a good Ohio State team in the semifinal, and yes, for those of us that watched the game, Ohio State was the better team and deserved to win. So to me, I just didn't see the scenario where LSU was going to lose this game, and they didn't, and of course, once they once they win it, all the questions kind of pop up. Are they the greatest team ever, and what is this, and what is that? Like, look, I don't know if they're the greatest team ever. I think it's going to be two, three, four, five, maybe 10 years before we can really realistically have that question. I understand they're the only team that's ever gone. Well, they're one of only two teams to go 15-0, and Clemson doing it last year, LSU doing it this year. They played, I think you can legitimately argue, the toughest schedule in college football. I believe that seven teams in the final top 10 they played in, and they beat, obviously. And so, like, you can have those arguments. I don't know if they're the greatest team ever. I mean, listen, the team that I've always said is the greatest that I ever saw was the 2001 Miami Hurricanes with Ed Reed and Andre Johnson and Jeremy Shockey and Clinton Portis and, Sant- like, all these guys. And they're a team that had 22 first-round draft picks. They had five guys drafted in the first round after that year. They set a record with six first-round picks in 2004. And so, like, I don't know where LSU is going to be compared to those guys five years from now. What What I can tell you right now, though, is I don't know that I've ever seen an offense like that. And it's crazy because during the game, as I was watching it, I was thinking, like, man, I have never seen an offense like this. And, of course, I, I you know, I thought about, tweeting something or saying something or whatever, but I was hesitant because as I told you last week, there's always yeah, but guy on Twitter that wants to tell you you're an idiot. And if I said something to the effect about LSU being the greatest offense I've ever seen, I just assumed I'd get the yeah, but well, well, what about the the 2003 Texas Tech Red? They put up 72 points. Like, like, I knew I was going to get something stupid or like, well, when Timmy Chang was at Hawaii, it's like, dude, shut up. I thought they were the best. I wasn't sure, but that was the conversation coming out of that game. And I really do believe that not only do I believe it's the best I've ever seen, not only did other people, I just can't even remember anything even remotely like it. And I understand that there's been great offenses at Oklahoma and there's been great offenses before I was born, before many of you were born. But man, I mean, just think about it like this. Just think about the fact this team averaged 48 points per game and they played six of the top 30 defenses in college football. Think of it like this. They averaged 48 points a game with a schedule that included Clemson, that included Georgia, that included Florida, that included Auburn, that included Texas, that included Texas A&M, that included Oklahoma. I think I said Bama, but in case I forgot, Bama, just think about that schedule. They averaged 48 points a game, 
And so, I no, I've never seen anything like this offense. It really is incredible. It really was fun to watch. And I, I just, I don't think we've ever seen anything like it. I would say this, Joe Burrow, and we're going to get to the next uh, couple years of Joe Burrow's career in a second. I've never seen anything like what Joe Burrow did. 60 touchdown passes in a season. 65 touchdowns accounted for against the schedule that he played. That's four touchdowns a game against, again, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Oklahoma, Texas, Texas A&M. I can't even remember all the great teams that they played. I'm sure I missed somebody, Auburn, Florida, whoever. I, I missed some people. But I've never seen anything like what Joe Burrow did. By the way, kind of not being talked about. We're so busy talking about the team and Joe Brady. I've never seen Ed Orgeron. I've never seen a coach run through the victories over great coaches like Ed Orgeron did. I mean, think about it like this. There's only five coaches in college football with national championships, and there's only three that have won a national championship in the last decade. Jimbo Fisher, Dabo Sweeney, and Nick Saban. And obviously, Saban and Sweeney have won multiple national championships over the last decade. Ed Orgeron beat all three of them. The only other two that have won national championships are Les Miles and Mac Brown. I don't even know that they count because they're at, you know, kind of these outskirts in college football. And so when I look at what Ed Orgeron did, as I tweeted on Tuesday, think about the bingo card. I mean, he can say bingo pretty quick with the names that he can check off on his list from this year. He beat Dabo Sweeney. He beat Nick Saban. He beat Dan Mullen. He beat Gus Malzahn. He beat Lincoln Riley, Kirby. Just think about it like this. If you ask most people, name your top four coaches in college football, they would probably almost consensusly say in some order, Nick Saban, Dabo Sweeney, Kirby Smart, and Lincoln Riley. And Ed Orgeron beat all four of them, plus Jimbo Fisher, who's won a national championship, plus Tom Herman, who I know, like whatever, let's all make our jokes about Tom Herman. Dan Mullen, widely considered to be one of the best coaches in college football. Ed Orgeron just beat him, just beat Gus Malzahn, who's a pretty darn good coach, even though I know that at times he is criticized by many, including in his own fan base. So like, I look at this whole situation, I say like, man, I have never seen anything like it. But what I would also say, as great as that year was, and it might go down as the greatest team ever, it's certainly, I think you can argue, the most accomplished team ever, 15-0 with all the wins that I just mentioned, with the Heisman Trophy winner, record-setting quarterback Joe Burrow, best season in the history of the SEC, best season in the history of college football, Ed Orgeron, National Coach of the Year, Joe Brady, National, Coach, uh, National Assistant Coach of the Year. I think what's fascinating is what is going to happen next. And, and I want to start with Joe Burrow. Listen, we have never seen anything like this. And this is something I'm confident in saying, is that we have never seen one guy go from one place in a year to where he is now. But what's been so interesting is exactly what I just said, is that what, what's so fascinating to me about the Joe Burrow story is that we spend so much time talking about, well, you know, he was at Ohio State and he couldn't beat out Dwayne Haskins and like Dwayne Haskins was a first round pick and like if that had gone different, maybe he'd still be at Ohio State. Like we spend so much time talking about the Ohio State aspect of it and I get it. I understand that's a huge part of the Joe Burrow narrative. But here's the fascinating part with Joe Burrow to me. Everybody talks about the fact that he couldn't win the starting job at Ohio State. How about the fact that he wasn't even that good at LSU? 
last season. Like, that's the part that's interesting to me. Forget the Ohio State stuff, because the Ohio State stuff, you can say whatever. Well, first he was behind JT Barrett. They changed offensive coordinators. Um, you know, all these different things happened. Dwayne Haskins was a first-round pick. Like, you can make the argument for why Joe Burrow didn't work at Ohio State. What's amazing to me is the fact that he wasn't even good at LSU last year. I looked up the stats to make sure that I was correct. These are real stats. You can look them up. They're going to sound like I'm making them up, but I'm really not. Joe Burrow at, Ohio, at LSU last year as a redshirt fourth-year junior completed 58% of his passes for 16 touchdowns and five interceptions. He went from 58% completions and 16 touchdowns to the greatest season in the history of college football. That's freaking insane, man. That is insane. You know what it also says to me, though? Like, I think it's kind of an interesting conversation going into the NFL draft, right? Like, like we're all caught up with Tua and like, can he stay healthy? What's the deal with the hip? Like, at least when Tua was on the field, Tua was pretty much money from the second he stepped on the field until the second he left the field. When he was healthy, he's throwing dimes, he's setting records, he's completing this insane amount of passes. And you look at Joe Burrow, and it's an amazing story. But I guess my question is, like, as we get ready for the NFL draft, like, are we positive? Like, like, like let's backtrack. I'm not saying Joe Burrow isn't going to be the number one pick. Joe Burrow is going to be the number one pick. He has earned that right. Uh, he had the, the greatest season I've ever seen from a college quarterback, especially considering the competition that he played. But this was a guy that completed 57%, 58% of his passes as a fourth-year junior in college. And now he is the consensus number one pick. And all I'm saying is, I think this is going to be a fascinating question going into draft season. Like I said, I think the interesting the LSU story for the last year has been amazing. But I think what's just as amazing is what's going to happen going forward because we're all caught up in the LSU Joe Burrow hysteria right now. But I got to tell you, I'm just sitting here saying like, He's going to be the number one pick. He should be the number one pick. If I was a GM, I would almost certainly take him number one. But like for a guy that was that good, that record setting, like there, I feel like there's some legitimate questions and I feel like nobody's asking them right now. But I feel like once the euphoria of this season wears off, like I do think like people are going to start asking like, are we like we're positive this guy should be the number one pick right like like we're positive to his hips like not healthy and we're positive that Chase Young like kind of wasn't that good when the competition got like we're positive Joe because I just look at Joe Burrow and I've never seen a leap year over year there has never been a leap year over year in the history of college football and so you have to assume you might be getting something closer to junior year Joe Burrow than I just think it's it, it'd be wrong to assume that you're getting senior year Joe Burrow. I'm hearing all these people that don't watch college football saying, I've never seen anything like it. He's the consensus number one, and he is. But I do think there are legitimate questions about him. Was it him? Was it the receivers around him? Was it the system with Joe Brady, the offense, the passing game coordinator that came to LSU? Because to me, that's the interesting conversation. Like, it, like, is Joe Burrow that good? Did he get that much better in one year? Or did he have great wide receivers? Did he have the perfect coach at the perfect time? And that was the X factor. I think that's fascinating. I would take it a step further.
I know most of you saw this news, but I just mentioned Joe Brady, who won the Broyles Award as the top assistant coach in college football. He was only at LSU for one year. They have this historic passing attack. And on Tuesday, he announces that he is leaving LSU to be the offensive coordinator for the Carolina Panthers. I'm just saying. First of all, I was, I was actually legitimately surprised that he decided to go out. For people who don't know the backstory on Joe, Joe Brady, the, the coordinator. I'm not talking about Joe Burrow, the quarterback. I'm talking about Joe Brady, the coordinator. Joe Brady was a guy that was an offensive assistant with the New Orleans Saints last year as of like 2016. So we're talking like three football seasons ago. He was like the assistant defensive backs coach at Penn State. He's an assist, an offensive assistant with the Saints. I'm not saying offensive coordinator. I'm talking offensive assistant. He basically threw on the side with JT Barrett during practice. Like I was reading reports about it. And that guy in one year, Ed Orgeron, saw something in him that nobody else saw. He comes to LSU. He implements this offense. They set all these records. He goes off to the NFL. One, like I said, I'm a little bit surprised only because I felt like, you know, I felt like maybe he might feel like he owes something to Ed Orgeron because Ed Orgeron kind of found him when nobody else did. But I also kind of understand the perspective from his perspective of like, one, I came from the NFL. Two, this is my chance to not only make a name for myself at the highest level, but it's my chance to make life-changing money. Because what's crazy is, I don't know what his exact salary was with the New Orleans Saints, but it wasn't very much. And I think he made like 400000 with LSU this year. And he was even saying before this uh, national championship game, when he became kind of the buzz in college football, that like until a month ago, he didn't have an agent. Because he didn't need an agent. Because there was nobody that wanted him as a coach. So he leaves the, he leaves the, NF, he leaves the LSU for the Carolina Panthers. And one, again, for the last time, I'm surprised that he did it. I thought he might feel an obligation to stick around with Coach O. But now I think the fascinating question becomes this. LSU just had this amazing historic season. Are we sure that it's replicable for LSU? That's the fascinating part to me. That is the fascinating part to me, is are we positive that it is replicable for LSU. You lose Joe Burrow, who whatever I think about him, whatever questions I have, it was the most historic season in the history of college football. And then you lose the coordinator that basically was the, the, the glue that brought it all together. And I'm just saying, listen, I love Coach O. I hope he goes on to win three more of these things. I think he's great for the sport. He's great for Louisiana. He's humble. He, he is who he is. He's not Nick Saban. He's not Urban Meyer. He's not super serious all the time. And, you know, I take myself too seriously. And, I, you know, like he's like one of us, right? Like he's a dude that he's been fired. He's been low. He's been unemployed. I can't speak for all you guys and girls listening. That's been me. I've had low moments. I've had dark moments. So I hope Coach O stays. I think he's awesome. I think he's fun for the sport. But are we sure what LSU did is replicable going forward? You lose Joe Burrow, Heisman Trophy winning quarterback. You lose the offensive coordinator. And I got to be honest, as tough as that schedule was, LSU did get quite a few breaks this season. They got Auburn, Florida, and Texas A&M all at home. Now, they did have to go to Bama, so let's not discredit going to Bama and getting a win. They did get Bama without Tua, by the way, at 100%. Tua did play, but he wasn't 100%. Well, next year, think about the schedule. You know, you don't have Joe Burrow. You're bringing in a quarterback that's basically never played meaningful minutes before. You lose your offensive coordinator, and now all of a sudden, 
You got Florida on the road. You got Auburn on the road. You got Texas A&M on the road. You still got Bama at home. You still got Texas coming in from the out-of-conference. So it will be fascinating to watch from not only Joe Burrow's perspective in the NFL, I'm fascinated to watch LSU in the next year. Is this something that can be maintained for the next year? Because I'm just not sure that it is. I'm just not sure that this is like this crazy changing of the guard. And it's funny because my buddy Ryan Fowler actually tweeted this the other day when Clemson lost. Last year after Clemson wins the national championship game, everyone would say, Alabama's dynasty is dead. Clemson's the new team. Well, Clemson's really good, but there are teams that are capable of beating Clemson. And when LSU beat Alabama, the question became like, okay, like is this, like has LSU now surpassed Bama? And I can't say that I'm convinced that they have. And I can say that from both LSU's perspective, from Joe Burrow's perspective, from Ed Orgeron's perspective, I am fascinated to see how the next year unfolds because I really do believe that we may look back on this season and say, man, think about all the stars that had to align. You have the perfect, you have as, uh, as good of a schedule as you can have relative to how many tough games you have. You bring in this coordinator for one year. You bring it, you have a senior fifth-year quarterback with a chip on his shoulder. You have nobody believes in Ed Orgeron. Well, now Ed Orgeron's a national championship winning coach. Now people have expectations of him, and so I will be fascinated to see this unfold. By the way, the one X factor I haven't even talked about, which is another conversation for another day, now that Joe Brady's in Carolina, do they maybe try to, try to trade up to get Joe Burrow? That's another conversation for another day. But again, I just think there are so many fascinating questions about LSU and about this championship run. We're so caught in the hysteria of it. We're so caught in everything that happened over the last year. I think the next year will be the equally fascinating part with LSU, Joe Burrow, and Ed Orgeron. All right, so quickly, I do want to wrap up here, uh, get back to basketball. I know it's kind of a weird episode, foot, uh, basketball to football, back to basketball. I did want to talk a little bit about the Kentucky-Arkansas game that is coming up on Saturday at Bud Walton Arena. I said it off the top. I was actually supposed to be there. There were some complications. I do my radio show on Saturday, and it was it was just a mess. And so I tried to get down there. We had a sponsor set up everything, and unfortunately, it just never came together. But as I said off the top, we got a ton of Arkansas fans that listen to this show, a ton of Kentucky fans that listen to this show. And I really do believe, even though I spent all that time talking about Alabama off the top and how they're turning a corner, even though LSU is by technicality in first place in this league, Auburn is undefeated, this is the first like major, marquee, huge game of the SEC season. And I do think these are two of the three best teams in this conference, along with Auburn. It put them in whatever order. But I think these are two of the best teams, and I think it's going to make for a great game. And so what I want to do is kind of first kind of lay out for each side what the other side looks like, and we can kind of go from there and kind of just thoughts on the game in general. Um, for a Kentucky fan that maybe hasn't seen Arkansas, uh, this Arkansas team is really fun to watch. You should be checking them out when Kentucky's not playing. Um, but they have, as I've said on this show, four guys that at any point can get you 20 points in a game Mason Jones, who I think you can make a legitimate case, is the early uh, favorite to win SEC Player of the Year, is is maybe the best player on this team. He leads the team in basically every major category. Isaiah Joe is a guy who NBA scouts are in love with. He's averaging 18 a game. Jimmy Witt is a guy um, 
kind of good in the mid-range, 13 points a game. And Desi Sills, he's only averaging 9 a game. And I'm telling you, I've seen him get 20. I know he's capable of getting 20. And Arkansas just plays this fun pace and space, ball movement, three-point shooting. The guys seem to really like each other. They're a veteran team. And listen, I know Eric Musselman's been on this show, but I'm just going to give him credit. And it's not because he's been on this show a million times. It's not because of that. It's because he took a team that was hungry, that wanted to win, that needed to be pushed And he has done that. That's no disrespect to Mike Anderson, but I don't think that this team would be where they are right now if Mike Anderson was the head coach. Credit to Mike Anderson, by the way, who's doing really good things at St. John's, but this was a veteran team that wanted to be pushed, and they're being pushed, and they play phenomenal basketball. Now, as I've said on this show a couple times, they are probably a guy or two short down low. That was exposed against LSU a few games ago. I think they finished minus 29 on the boards, uh, minus 22 on the offensive boards. And so when I look at this game, uh, I see a fascinating matchup between two sets of really good guards. Kentucky has the very, very good guards as well. Emmanuel quickly has been awesome. Tyrese Maxey, Ashton Hagens. Obviously, it wasn't Kentucky's best game against South Carolina on Wednesday night. But, 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 I think it's going to be a really fun matchup between those two sets of guards. I'll be fascinated by this, too. John Calipari has said, like, look, I'm forcing Khalil Whitney and I'm forcing Keon Brooks into the lineup because I know that I'm going to need those guys for March. I wonder if he backs off that a little bit on Saturday because they don't match up great with Arkansas, which doesn't have a ton of size, but they have so much quickness, so much athleticism on the perimeter. I do think an X factor for Kentucky, it's going to be like I said um, at the top of the show. Nick Richards is their most important player, and he's going to be even more important in this game because Nick Richards is a guy that can change shots at the rim, Arkansas doesn't really have an answer for him, and he's got to stay out of foul trouble. He's got to stay on the court, and when he's on the court, he gets easy baskets, he gets easy points. So, um, you know, listen, if you guys want to hit me with any more individual questions, let me know. But listen, I just think it's going to be a fun back and forth game. Obviously, Arkansas is going to have the insane home court advantage. This game has been sold out for months. I think it's sold out in late November, early December, somewhere in there. I know it's going to be crazy. The late afternoon start is going to give everyone a chance to, uh, you know, have a little fun before, <laughs> before the game. Like I said, I do wish I could be there, but I won't be. And I do think it's you're going to get the best version of Kentucky as well. Uh, because of the simple fact that they're coming off a loss. They don't want to turn one loss into two, and I do think you'll get the best version of Kentucky. So I think this will be one of the games of the year in the SEC. This is the only time that these two teams meet during the regular season. Obviously, when the uh, schedule makers were putting things together, they did not know that Arkansas would be this good. But Arkansas has been phenomenal, by the way. Credit to them. 14-2 14-2 and two on the season. Their two losses, one in overtime to Western Kentucky where they basically led the entire game. The other one to LSU where they just got killed on the boards but continued to play their you-know-what's off. Arkansas has exceeded expectations. Kentucky, I don't think anyone would say has exceeded expectations, but I still think in the broader picture they're trending in the right direction. I think they'll be fine by March. This is going to be a great game. For all the Arkansas fans that will be there, enjoy it. The rest of us will enjoy watching it on TV. All right, so I think that's about it for today's show. We bounced off to a lot of different topics. Before we go, I do got to give a quick shout-out to the day. 
And after Diego the Turtle, Diego the Tortoise, and Quade Green, <laughs> which have nothing in common other than winning the shout-out of the day, they won it on Sunday. Today's shout-out of the day, we're going to go ahead and give it to the LSU Athletic Department. Why the LSU Athletic Department? Not because you won the national championship in football on Monday. Not because you're in first place in basketball. Not because I hear your gymnastics program is amazing. The reason LSU gets the shout-out of the day is because of this insane Odell Beckham story. And by now, you've all seen it. But on the sideline Monday night, Odell Beckham, former LSU Tiger, LSU wins, and Odell Beckham pulls out a wad of cash and just starts handing out $100 bills to kids like it's nothing. And of course, it became this big thing on social media. And of course, LSU did what was kind of dumb, right? What did they originally do? They played the, well, you know, they kind of played the, uh, sorry, our account was hacked card there. They basically were like, yeah, um, well, yeah, he was handing out bills, but they weren't real. Yeah, because Odell Beckham is just walking around the Superdome with fake bills in his pocket. He just he just grabbed a Monopoly board before he left and grabbed a bunch of yellow and red $100 bills and is handing them out for fun. They were real $100 bills. You don't have to fake it. And then, of course, what happens after that? Joe Burrow goes on part of my take. I actually listened to the interview before I did this show just to make sure I didn't miss anything. Uh, he, he seemed like he still had a little buzz going from the night before. And he basically says, look, Odell gave me some real money. So then LSU has to backtrack and say, well, you know, we heard it's real money. We're investigating. We're talking with the NCAA, blah, 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 this and that. All I'm saying is LSU, you could not have handled it worse. You could not have handled it worse. This is all you had to say. LSU going forward. If Odell ever does this again, well, hopefully Odell will never do this again. By the way, the Odell portion of this is a completely different story because that guy just needs attention 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, but outside of that, this is all you had to say, LSU. We had a prominent uh, uh, alumni on the sideline. He, he was not aware of the rules. You know, you make something up better than it's fake money. I'll take it a step further. Forget that it's fake money. This is all you had to say. The cameras only caught Odell giving Justin Jefferson a $100 bill, okay? So if they only caught Justin Jefferson, this is all you have to say. Justin Jefferson had, a, had made us aware that he has, was planning on declaring for the NFL draft, which he did. The player that Odell was caught on video giving money to has already declared for the NFL draft. So all you say is he had made us aware that he was declaring for the NFL draft. We knew he was done with his eligibility, so we assumed it was okay. Or we talked to the NCA, or we're going to talk to the NCA. But don't tell us it's fake money. Nobody believes that. Nobody believes it's fake money. Just like nobody believes that when, when people say their account got hacked. Nobody believes that you were actually holding those cigarettes for your friend. Nobody believes that crap. Stop it, LSU. You're better than this. You don't need to fake it. Just tell us the truth. Tell us that jo Justin Jefferson is graduating. Joe Burrow has already graduated. They are no longer members of the LSU football community. But don't give us this, it's a fake It's a fake money. Just stop. You look stupid. So shout out to LSU because that was the dumbest, lamest excuse that I have ever heard for anything. Nobody thought it was fake. We didn't need the Hardy Boys to get to the bottom of this, okay? It was so obviously real money. Just own up to it and say that it'll never happen again. All right. So that's it for today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I am exhausted. It is about probably 1 a.m. Eastern time uh, as I wrap up here. I want to thank you guys for listening. As always, if you're not subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, you can do it in any number of ways. iTunes, Podcast Addict, Podbean, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Podcast Addict again for Android, 
Wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure that you are subscribed. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Give us a quick five stars. Uh, make sure you're following on Instagram. I am handing out winners in college football, college basketball left and right, so make sure you're following on Instagram, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast. Finally, if you have any questions, we will get to the mailbag. I got about 20 questions that are just sitting here because I was going to do a mailbag today before college hoops went crazy, so hit me up. Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. That is all for today's show. I will be back Monday. That's it. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel that hates my voice. Uh, shout out to everybody. Shout out to LSU. I will see you guys on Monday.